The following content is explicit. It's Friday, May 18th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So today was one of those days of horrible news. School shooting, plane crashed in Cuba, hundreds dead. So what I want to do now is not to make you feel better, but to give you something else tangible to possibly feel bad about. And it is our president and what he may or may not be doing and what his investigation may or may not entail. So this week, I just found I maybe didn't pay so much attention to the news for about a 36-hour period. And it was one of those days when so much was swirling and it was hard to figure out what was the swirl, what was just the garbage that got caught up in an eddy, and what were real developments. So I'm going to try to lay that out for you. So some of the swirl was that the Times reported that the Kushner companies were in talk with Brookfield, which builds malls and things. Brookfield has some interest in Brookfield is uh, in the Qatar state fund. So it can be said that a company linked to Qatar might give a major investment to Jared Kushner and his family's companies about the uh, 666 Fifth Avenue investment. Don't know how far along those talks are. Perhaps you read stories that seem to indicate the Qataris are just putting money in the Kushner's pockets. It's not that, but I wouldn't say it's not emoluments. There was a war on leaks coming out of the White House after a segment on Fox and Friends where a reporter for the National Review said that there was an investigation into someone in the Trump campaign possibly working with the FBI. Donald Trump tweeted this was bigger than Watergate. I wouldn't say this is tangible. It seems to be a fit of peak that might lead to something. As to the actual developments, let's talk about the people that Robert Mueller has either indicted or investigated. The actual. First of all, Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort is wearing two ankle bracelets. I heard Chris Hayes say this the other day, and I said to myself, is that literally true? They just can't program the same ankle bracelet from two different jurisdictions? No, apparently the guy's wearing two ankle bracelets. I don't know if they're on matching feet or symmetrical. Don't know how that works. But Paul Manafort wearing those ankle bracelets, and so too is his son-in-law. His son-in-law, a guy named Jeffrey Yohai, uh, former son-in-law, I should say, has agreed to cooperate with the authorities. And the speculation, the strong speculation is perhaps he has information to offer the Mueller investigation. This goes in with my theory that you got to watch out for the son-in-laws or the former son-in-laws. You got Emin Agalarov, you got Jared Kushner, you got Putin's former son-in-law, and now you have Paul Manafort's former son-in-law, this guy, Yohai. He looks a little like the comedian Chris Delia, which... If they're going to play him on the last episode of Saturday Night Live tomorrow, it would be sad if they got Chris Delia. He might still be under contract with NBC for that failed Whitney Cummings sitcom. But there, as a cast member of NBC, is this poor guy, Luke Null. He gets cast in nothing. They keep going out and getting celebrities and quasi-celebrities to play people involved in the Trump investigation. Just throw a roll to Luke Null. Put a beard on the guy. Don't get Delia. Okay, remember, I was telling about the tangible. And the other tangible 
tangible thing is that Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, has been receiving and soliciting payments via a shell company. And the business seems to be, I have insight into the president's mindset. The New Yorker's Ronan Farrow, who I believe is the first, second, fourth, and eighth best journalist working today, spoke to a law enforcement official who leaked the documents behind the information that we have about Michael Cohen. And this lawyer, this law enforcement official, I should say, is that he began to be alarmed that he couldn't find important reports of Cohen's financial activity in a government database. He wasn't sure if these had been disappeared by, well, who? So we just put it out there, and now we know about some of the sticky stuff going on with Michael Cohen. Now, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked about the Cohen investigation, and uh, I think that she said something that not only would you expect a White House spokesperson to say, but actually has a lot of validity to it. She was asked, Michael Cohen received millions of dollars apparently peddling the insights he said he could provide into this administration. That seems the definition of swampy. And here's what Ms. Sanders said. I think that would be up to those individuals who make the decision to hire someone uh, just the same way uh, that the companies that you work for make the decision to determine whether or not they think that you're qualified to serve in a position. That's the decision of an independent company and has nothing to do with the White House. Now, here's the thing. This is a fine answer. You would expect people close to Trump, people who want to protect Trump, people who want to cauterize whatever damage that Cohen is doing, people who want to cauterize the president from that damage would say, this is just a guy who was freelancing, whatever prior association he has, we can't help what he's doing now. Fine. But they don't really pound on that point. They don't really and truly cut Michael Cohen loose ever. Because as much as it's true that it doesn't seem that peddling insights into the administration and getting AT&T and Novartis to give hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars doesn't seem that Trump knew about that or Trump had a hand in it. If you go about castigating Michael Cohen, if you truly set him adrift, it seems to me that the administration fears some exposure. So we've got this interesting situation where most of the known stuff that's causing damage to the administration can be lessened, can be leavened, can be, like I said, cauterized by saying, that's Michael Cohen, that's his own business, that guy's dead to us, we don't know from that guy. But the reason they're not going hard on that point is, it seems to me that they don't want the guy to flip. Maybe not on this stuff, maybe on other stuff regarding the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but it is an interesting dance where Cohen is embarrassing you in ways that Donald Trump seems not to have known about, but they seem very worried about what he does know about. And this has been some tangible developments, along with some informed speculation about the ongoing investigation into our president. On the show today, I spiel about uh, the dopamine rush that comes with checking Amazon about your book rankings But first, she is a somewhat legendary comedy writer who's written for such shows as The Simpsons and Letterman, and now she's out with a new book about her experience writing for funny guys, and almost always guys. Here's Nell Scavell. The number one question that any successful person ever gets when they do talks, let's say, is, 
how did you get your start? Which really means, how do I get my start? So (laughs) Nels Cavell doesn't like to answer that question, who would? So what she did essentially was write an entire book that lays it out in detail (laughs) with an especial emphasis on being a woman in the game of writing things that are funny, just the funny parts, and a few hard truths about sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club by Nell. Scovell. Scovell? Yes, it? no, it's Nell Scovell. Yeah, I'm um, Scovell. a member of the My Name is a Poem Club. Nell Scovell. I was thinking about Nell Scovell. It could be, do you think it's more of a, a um, pharmaceutical product or like um, <laughs> one of those new coffees, you know? Ooh, and in flavors like Nell Scovell. Oh, that sounds delightful. <laughs> right, right? It's the perfect pick-me-up to start a morning. With hints of cherry. So you grew up in the Boston area. In Newton, Massachusetts. Newton, it's, Mass. it's a great place to be from. A lot of funny people are from there because it's hard because I guess you get to hone your wit against the other witty people from the New England area. Is that is that why? Oh, I don't know. You know, you think of New England and Bob and Ray and there is that sort of stoic strain to this right. sense of humor. The downside is there's not a lot of Hollywood influence there. This is true. You know, Eli Roth went to the same high school that I went to. So a couple. So but did you even know you wanted to write for Hollywood and for the movies because you were just a writer, writer, journalist, writer, sports writer, all sort of writer? I actually never considered it. I I didn't even know people wrote for TV um, until one day an editor said to me, I don't mean this as an insult, Nell, but I think you could write for television. Ah. (laughs) So throughout your career, people were giving you insults as compliments and compliments that were insults. (laughs) That's right. Because Gary Shandling (laughs) says you write like a guy, which he meant is the highest praise. He did. And I think what he meant was I, I wrote hard jokes. Yeah. And Your punchlines had punch. Yeah. Yes. Do you think if you looked at a bunch of scripts in 2018 and they were all of fine quality and it was blind, you'd be able to tell who the men were and who the women were? No. And they were good. I don't think so either. But that's 2018. Maybe in 1982 it was different. In part because of the cultural bias that might have told women, like, you can't be loud, you can't be crude. And that takes out a lot of comedy. Right. And a lot of women, and not even women writers, but women performers, they adopted um, an exaggerated character. So, you know, pudgy. And she'd always tell those self-deprecating or jokes Rita about Rudner. her. Or Rita Rudner. And, they, and they're fine, great. Yeah. And it's not that men don't do that. There's everyone from Jay Leno, who's sort of a character, but is just a guy making observations, to Rodney Dangerfield. Women doing comedy, much more of the Phyllis Diller than just the person making observations. Well, a lot of comedians are self-deprecating, but I think right. women especially... Especially in that era, in the 70s. When well, we I was yeah. really lucky, though, because I was born in 1960, and so I got to grow up watching something that women today don't get to see, which is... Mary Tyler Moore Show. No, but a, a late night host who was female and Joan Rivers right. subbed for Johnny Carson all the time. And I thought she was way funny or Johnny with his golf swing. That didn't speak to me, but I love Joan Rivers. Yeah, I know. What can you do? If I had an affair, kissing wise, it's funny because you look, you look at me and you think, who would be a good kisser? Yeah. What do you think? Well, I would never kiss Mick Jagger. <laughs> no, I think he just swallow your face. I mean,. <laughs> Was she important to you? Because she was a stand-up and you write all sorts of comedy, but mostly in sitcoms. She was a model. I, I had two really funny aunts, my Aunt Jane and my Aunt Pinky, and they were <laughs> dark 
and they worked blue. Yeah. And I remember once my sister Alice was reading Little Women on the couch, and Pinky walked by, tapped her on the shoulder, and said, don't get too attached to Beth. (laughs) (laughs) This is before the age of spoiler warnings. (laughs) Right. In high school, this new show, Saturday Night Live, started, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I'd stay up late and watch it because you had to. There was no YouTube, so if you wanted to know why people were talking about land sharks on Monday, you had to stay up. You know, it never occurred to me that women couldn't be funny because so many, Bette Midler, The Thin Man, Myrna Loy, and right. Singing in the Rain, Gene Hagen. I mean, they were hilarious. But what about women writers? I mean, there weren't that many of them, but I don't know how conscious one would be if one weren't a writer. Already. Well, we had Sally on the Dick Van Dyke show. Which right. They had a three-person staff. One was female, which means a third of the writers yeah. on the Alan Brady show yeah. were, were women, which is... You know, Leno and Letterman never got close. So you were living this. You were living this life, this thing we call life. And you were (laughs) thinking very often about being a woman in comedy, trying to help other female comedy writers. And then you get contacted by Sandberg, or how did that happen? Because it seems like both of these things was were very fortuitous. Well, when I I write this article for Vanity Fair in 2009 that calls out the Letterman show and the Leno show for not having any women on staff. I do this sort of pivot from sexual harassment to gender discrimination. Yeah. And and I also want to add in 33 years on the air, Letterman writers room never had a single person of color. Not one. Not one. Yeah. So you literally couldn't do worse when it comes to diversity. Right. So I speak out about this and Um, I'm working on a show called Warehouse 13 at the time, which is on the Sci-Fi Channel. It's a really good show. And every now and then a guy in the room, I'm still the only woman in the room, would say something sexist. And then another person would say, you know, O'Neill's going to get you for that. And I would say, well, yeah, 19 years from now, you're going to be really sorry you said that. But I became an outspoken feminist And I met Cheryl, you're going to kick yourself when I tell you how. Yeah. Through Facebook. Ah, (laughs) that's it. That's very on brand for at least one of you. (laughs) Well, you know, they say the point of social media is is either you get laid or get paid. Yeah, yeah. So I I got paid. (laughs) All right. So when you wrote the book, did you start putting labels to a lot of the phenomena that you witnessed throughout your life? So to go back, so I quit Letterman after five months because I... Just know I'm not going to thrive there. And also, there's not there's not that much writing every night. You've got 12 writers. Yeah. There's only 10 in the top 10 list. Right. And maybe you're doing... And if people don't know, there's a real um, separation of responsibilities. There, If you're a monologue guy, you're a monologue guy. Although I used to... I broke into the monologue a few times. I, I was pretty happy with that. <laughs> That's good. So I, I leave the show. And a few years later, Anita Hill starts testifying. Yeah. On several occasions, Thomas told me graphically of his own sexual prowess. Because I was extremely uncomfortable talking about sex with him at all, and particularly in such a graphic way, I told him that I did not want to talk about these subjects. And she's talking about sexual harassment with Clarence Thomas. And Finally, I had a word to put through. You know, I just thought it was messed up. Like, I had no technical terminology. Yeah. 
The um, phrase sexual harassment wasn't widely used in the culture. No. And yeah. then HR departments were just for hiring people. So I do think labels are really important. And I started first helping Cheryl with speeches. Yeah. And the first one was the Forrestal lecture that she gave at Annapolis. And in the book, I actually include this screenshot of an outline she sent me, which says, um, women need to lean in, which was the first time she had used the phrase. Is she funny? Is she a funny person? She is. She's delightful. What's a good Sheryl Sandberg joke that you guys worked on? Oh, well, that <laughs> I, don't know. We, I tell a story in the book about how we're at a book party and someone came up to me and asked me to sign the book for them. And I waved them off and said, you don't want my signature. It's Cheryl's book. And then thought about that and realized that, you know, I had helped write this book about owning your own success. Right. And wasn't modeling that. You leaned out a little bit. I did. <laughs> so, I mean, look, this shit is deep. <laughs> so I write Cheryl that night because I thought she would be amused by the whole thing. And she wrote me back, um, <laughs> I know a great book you should read. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so since this book came out, and your name is really well known among writers, and you have uh, you you were the showrunner and cre- creator of Sabrina the Teenage, I was. well, the Archie Comics, I guess, were the creator. Yes, but yeah, yeah, of the TV show, TV show Sabrina, or the ABC TV show, because now they're bringing it back. Oh my god, as an hour long on the CW. So of, of course they are because yeah. they're out of ideas in the world. It is a golden age <laughs> of no new ideas. God, um, and and uh, the Simpsons, that incredible Fogo Fogo episode. You obviously uh, had your name on one of the best-selling nonfiction books of the decade, Cheryl Sandberg's book. But now, since this memoir is out, and since uh, they've been covering what everything you've been talking about, have you become now this go-to expert in this new world, which is breaking the ranks of uh, the old old boys network in Hollywood? I'm not as optimistic as a lot of people. And recently someone said, now you must be happy about the Me Too movement. And I'm like, I think it's happening because women feel we have nothing left to lose. The things that do give me hope are the inclusion rider. And hearing that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon's company has adopted this. And to me, this is a contract production companies make where they agree to hit goals for diversity, um, with both gender, with people of color, with people with disabilities, with members of the LGBTQ community. And it goes past lip service. Look, everybody wants to be more diverse, or they say they want Mm -hmm. to be diverse. And then we hear, you know, well, we just couldn't find anyone. Yeah. It's a pipeline problem. So I don't buy the pipeline problem. I call it a broken doorbell problem where there are all these competent, talented people on the doorstep ringing the doorbell and no one's opening the door. So you were a showrunner. You know all the pressures from above, from below, deliver the numbers. Um, How would an inclusion writer be if you wanted to, if you had this idea or if this idea were invented then, how would you practically get it involved in, say, Sabrina the Teenage Witch? Well, I would have saved some slots in the writer's room 
for people who came from different backgrounds and had different experiences. So are, that, that yeah. You're the boss. You could cast the show. If yeah. your star, who has a lot of uh, control and sway over the show, demands it, you'd have to do it. That's but right. But what if you're between casting this third, not a guest star, but like an important role in the show, and one person is an inclusion writer and one person doesn't? Maybe you, Nell, would like to include the inclusion writer, but would the network honcho say, we don't want to, we don't want to have to deal with that? Well, recent, recently, WME did endorse the inclusion rider, yeah. and they said they're suggesting it to all their clients. So that would be great. And, you know, change can come very quickly. You know, we looked at gay marriage. And the point I make in my book is that it's not just the fair thing to do or the right thing to do. It will make all these shows better. There's a line I used in my Vanity Fair article which, in fact, I didn't write. And I, in the book, I tell the story of showing this article to Albert Brooks yeah. before it was published and him nodding his head and saying, in my experience, a fairer share of humanity will always produce better comedy. Yeah. And I tell this great story where Nikki Glaser was feeding me women when they were looking for writers on the Jimmy Kimmel show. And, you know, it took five women to open the doors so this woman's talent could get her the job. Yeah. Do you, there used to be a big argument, you know, none of the late night hosts were women. Chelsea had her show on uh, the- We have e- Sam, Sam B. Right. Yeah. So now where the media landscape has shifted- you know, is network host, I guess it's still a thing because of legacy media, but does that really matter anymore? If you could have these shows on Netflix and Hulu and Sam B on TBS, yes, it's true that ABC, NBC, and uh, CBS don't have a woman hosting their show. How well, important but, but is that But Netflix still? just made a, a deal with Joel McHale, David Letterman, right. Norm MacDonald. Such funny men. Yes. Very funny men. Not taking anything away from them, but... Where's the where's the equivalent deal and, for and the voice? And one point of also I always make with we have all these white male hosts and and someone said well you've got to find writers who can capture that voice and write for them and I said except your writers aren't writing for them and he said they're not and I said no you're writing for the audience yeah and unless the audience is ninety percent male which it's not it's usually pretty close to fifty fifty. Then, then your writer's room should reflect that. Yes, and I've heard Jimmy Kimmel, who you point out uh, is pretty good with uh, hiring and diversity, he talks about when the show started, late night was a bastion of male viewers, and now it really is 50-50, and that yeah. has changed. And yeah. maybe it's changed, I'll throw a theory out, because he's diversified his writer staff. Maybe there is chicken sure. and egg there, too. Yeah. Yeah. Nels Cavell is uh, your favorite breakfast treat and also the author of Just the Funny Parts and a Few Hard Truths About Sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club. Nell, it was so good to have you by. Oh, I appreciate it. And 
And now the spiel. I'm out with a book this week. I don't know if you heard. It's called Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs of Sports History. And other friends of mine, people I know who are authors, talked about the danger of Amazon. Uh, The good thing is it sells books. The bad thing is it has pretty accurate information about how your book is selling. So it's very tempting to get a dopamine rush, uh, very much like the rat hitting the space bar, very tempting to see how your book is doing on an hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute basis. Luckily, I did not have to fall into this trap because I had something else to occupy my mind and my dopamine, which was, we also have a podcast out called Upon Further Review. And iTunes also has fairly accurate rankings, which are updated, if not minute by minute, hour by hour. So between these two things, I could get feedback on my self-worth and the work I've been putting in for the last two and a half years. Tempting, isn't it? Possibly also a little eh, ego distorting. So here we go. Uh, Upon further review, the podcast, uh, and please... Uh, I ask you, like a politician, they have to ask for your vote. I have to ask for your subscription, and I mean it. Uh, Please consider helping me in this podcast and just entertaining the heck out of yourself by subscribing to it. So many people did that it was number one in sports podcasts and doing quite well in podcasts overall. That's great. The book also was up there and down there, and it started off the week on Monday in the 2000s, and then when it actually went on sale, this is fascinating to consider, Sales shot up into the 200s, and then the triple digits, and then it got in the top 100, peaking at 81. So I was doing whatever I could to get the book to go higher than 81, but you know, I'm only one guy with one Twitter feed and one book and also two podcasts, but I do what I can. I couldn't really push it up past 81. It was stuck at 81 for a while, then there was some fluctuation, so I decided that the best strategy to do... I could be selling my book. I could try to get it higher on the charts by pushing and extolling its virtues and boring the heck out of you, my poor gist listeners who want insights into Gaza and the World Bank and the desalinization of the sea, the rainforest, something's getting desalinated. Anyway, I said, no, no, that's not how to do it. I've studied enough campaigns to know how these things work. You just play to the base. You get the base out there and you try to depress the overall turnout elsewhere. Plus, with this crazy algorithm that I think gives Wyoming three votes for every book that's bought in California, doesn't make any sense. If you do that, if you do a base book selling election and try to depress turnout and try to maybe shit talk the other 80 books on the list, you could get somewhere. So let's do it. Let's make the case against many, if not all, of the 80 books above mine on the Amazon bestselling list. Well, right off the bat, we have number five, The Complete Ketogenic Diet for Beginners, which seems fair enough, except there at number 18, you also have The Keto Diet, The Complete Guide to a High-Fat Diet, and there at 38, The Easy Five Ingredient Ketogenic Diet Cookbook. Further on down the list at 51, Keto Made Easy. At 62, Simply Keto. And at number 68, Tucker Carlson's Ship of Fools, which isn't a keto diet, but has been known to cause vomiting and weight loss. So here's the deal. I don't even have to argue against or for the keto diet as a thing. I'm just here to make the point that with five different books on the list, four of them have to be the least best book. 
So if you are only buying, look, if you know you're going to buy, buy all five books, I'm going to say you're doing it wrong. But like most people, they're interested in this diet. They want to buy one book. Four of these books are a mistake. So I say we just concentrate on one of the books. Number five, the complete ketogenic diet for beginners. It's complete. You are a beginner. It has a lot of pages. The cover has an avocado. You can't do this without an avocado, from what I understand. That's the one to go for. I think we've just addressed four of these other books that don't deserve to be there. Now, some of the books do deserve to be there. My book uh, is ranked number one in sports journalism. There's an interesting book by Dave Iskoff, who's a good writer, on Robin Williams, and it too is named a number one bestseller. Number one bestseller in suicide. That is literally the category that it's a number one bestseller in. I won't begrudge Mr. Iskov that accomplishment, but you know, it's maybe could be categorized other ways. And number two, there's, oh, the places you'll go, because a lot of people are graduating college or high school, and they have kind of unimaginative aunts and uncles, and that's a book that you give to graduates. Again, Seuss deserves to be there. There's another Seuss book up there at number 20. But there are some other books, I think, that maybe are a little too high on this list. There's The Very Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Carle. There's Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You Hear? Also by Eric Carle. There's P is for Potty, a Sesame Street Lift the Flap book. Don't want to know what's under the flap. There's Goodnight Moon. There's Kindergarten, Here I Come. Oh, and it looks like we're joined by a guest. Hello, what brings you in? I am Laszlo Hajinami, and I read and was greatly influenced by the 51st book on the Amazon list, P is for Potty. Oh, so you read P is for Potty. So uh, how were you influenced by it? Well, I really identified with the characters Elmo and Grover. As they were going to the struggles of using the bathroom, so was I. It taught me a lot. Oh, that's great. And I take it, therefore, that your actual potty training went pretty well? Not exactly. Well, how so? What do you mean? Well, P.S. for Potty certainly made a strong impression on me. It taught me everything I needed to know about the subject matter. Number one, it taught me that P is for Potty. And what about number two? Exactly. P is for Potty. P is for potty, but it did not address the other biological functions. It was just P, 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 P is for potty. Oh my God, do you mean that to this day you are unable to use the potty for, shall we say, solid matters? Does a bear poop in the woods? He does. So do I. Oh my. This is why I have a message for you. If you are in the sound of my voice, avoid P.S. for Potty. It leaves the job half-finished. It leaves me as a 12-year-old boy, sadly undereducated in that subject matter. Wow. Well, I got to say, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate your message today, and I also appreciate your bravery. You're welcome. Now, do you have access to a secluded woodland area? Because I have some business to attend to. Thank you very much. Okay, very good. Ah, that was interesting. Other books that, you know, I'm going to question about their appearance on this list. At number 37, there's a book called Hey Ladies, the story of eight best friends, one year, and way, way too many emails. Hey Ladies. I I didn't know that the name of the book was Hey Ladies because the cover of the book before the subtitle was the, the word, the phrase, Hey Ladies, in 
well, many different colors. It says, hey, ladies, 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 hey, ladies. Yes, I get it. There are eight best friends. So they say, hey, ladies, except think about this. If it's all eight friends saying hello to the other ladies, wouldn't they say it seven times? Isn't there one too many hey, ladies in hey, ladies, the story of eight best friends, one year and way, way too many emails? I, th- I think there is, and I think that book doesn't deserve to be at number 37. Next up, oh, hello. Joining me now in the studio is um, a special guest. What is your name? Alessandro Petbeard. Hello, Mr. Alessandro Petbeard, and what are you here to talk about? A book called Kindergarten, Here I Come. A book called Kindergarten, Here I Come. Yep. And was this a very influential book to you? No, I haven't read it. Oh, so why are you here to talk about it? Because I was the most successful kindergartner without having read Kindergarten, Here I Come. You were a successful kindergartner. Yes, I crushed Kindergarten without having read Kindergarten, Here I Come. Wow, so you crushed it. Okay, well, that's nice. So, so meaning you graduated and they said to you, good job, Alessandro, uh, here's your certificate. Uh, you did a nice job. Is that what happened? No, the... Germany called and said, would you like to change kindergarten to Alessandro Pet Beardegarden? Wait, the country of Germany, where kindergarten was invented, offered to change the name of kindergarten? Correct. And they did this because why? Because I was the most successful kindergartner without having read kindergarten, here I come. Wow, they almost changed the name of kindergarten to Alessandro Petbeard Garden, and you didn't even read that book, Kindergarten, Here I Come. And I denied. Wow, you did, you did not ask them to change the name. Yep, I denied. Why? Although I am an excellent kindergarten student, I am still quite humble. And this is without having read kindergarten, here I come. Wow, all right, let's go through... Many kindergartens have a similar curriculum. Let's go through some of the activities you may have done in kindergarten. Is that all right? Uh Uh-huh. One thing they do in most kindergartens is nap time. Did you do nap time in your kindergarten? I did. And have you ever heard of the power nap? I have heard of the power nap. I have invented the sustainably sourced power nap. Without having read kindergarten, here I come. Oh, my God. What about blocks? Were you good at blocks? Um, I was good at blocks. Have you ever heard of the great architect I.M. Pei? I've heard of I.M. Pei. He hired me to work for him for the next 10 years for me to build his blocks and design his next house. And Without this, having read Kindergarten, Here I Come. I.M. Pei hired you to work for him upon seeing your block work in kindergarten. True. Wow. And what about sharing, kindergartner share? I was most excellent at sharing. Really? Do you know Bernie Sanders? I do know Bernie Sanders. What year did you win? He ran. He started in 2015, and they, most of the primaries were in 2016. He saw me share in 2014, and he got all the ideas from me without having read Kindergarten, Here I Come. That is most impressive. Well, I've got to say that you haven't read these books. You've accomplished quite a lot. I'm, I'm pretty much blown away. I guess the only question is, what are you up to next? I'm going to write a book about the keto diet. I heard that it was a very high-ranked book. Without having read Kindergarten, here I come. Thank you very much, Alessandro Petbeard. You're welcome. All right. I, I, think, I think the boy makes a strong choice. So, you know, I don't know if it's possible 
to actually knock any of these books off a peg. Maybe what I need to do is to convince myself that I am the best number 81 I can be. Just revel in my 81-ness and not compare myself to the 80 on top of me. Just think about being 81 and the other 81s. Because Amazon doesn't just sell books. Amazon has hundreds and hundreds of categories. So what I did was I looked at the 81st best-selling product in the other categories. And if I could denigrate them, then maybe I'll feel a little bit better about myself and about upon further review. In the grocery and gourmet food category, the 81st best-selling item is Daily Chef Distilled White Vinegar 2-slash-1-gallon jugs 2-pack. Is it a two-pack of two one-gallon jugs? Is it a two-pack of two-gallon jugs? How many jugs of vinegar, representing exactly how many gallons, am I getting? It's not just my question. There is a section under every product on Amazon that says customer questions and answer. And the question is, below, the reviews say they ordered the two-slash-one-pack and only received one gallon. Is the 1999 for two one-gallon jugs? Answer, yes. The 1999 is for the two jugs of one gallon each. I'll read, a, I'll read a review of this, and not all the vinegar got five reviews. There was a one-star review. Sorry, this was a two-star review, and the review was, smells funny even for vinegar. I would just say, if it smelled funny for something other than vinegar, that would be the funniest thing, but smells funny for vinegar. But to be fair, there are plenty of good reviews. There was a five-star review that says, it's vinegar, and it arrived undamaged. And I guess with vinegar, that's just what you want. It is just, it seems odd to me and you're taking a big chance. You don't quite know how many, how many gallons of vinegar you're going to get. In the garden and outdoor category, the 81st best-selling item is Lemon Repel Eucalyptus Natural Insect Repellent Pump. One unit, four ounces. This doesn't seem like a very good product to me. It claims it's DEET-free or D-E-E-T-free, and everyone knows you either repel the insects or you embrace DEET. You can't go deep. You can't have it all. And speaking of having it all, in the clothing, shoes, and jewelry department, the 81st best-selling item is the Dickies Men's Short Sleeve Heavyweight Crew Neck Shirt. This has a lot of adjectives, a lot of words, First, they get you that it's short sleeve, so you're thinking fun and summery, but then they tell you that it's heavyweight, and the reviews, and by the way, the reviews are far from glowing. Only 72% for a t-shirt give it a five-star review. 14% give it a four-star review. Man, do you really want to take your chances? Do you want to really be among the possibly 14% who gave it a three-star or a lower review? And a lot of the reviews claim that the shirt was ill-fitting, that it was too small. There was even a reviewer who bought a size double XL and claimed it was too small. I kind of say Dickies. You're Dickies. You're supposed to be the friend to the working man. When the man buys a double X shirt, that almost can't be too small. There really can't be anyone walking around with a self-perception of themselves as double X, and then they get the double X item and it's too small. Vanity sizing tells us that you can't make people feel bad. And once you're beyond one X on the shirt, it can't be too small. You really screwed that one up, Dickies. You're, you're making Americans feel bad. Now, our final category, in the swimsuits and cover-up department, the 81st best-selling item is the B2 Purity 
be too P-R-I-T, be too pretty, maybe be too pretty women's one-piece swimwear, backless V-neck, bathing suits, tummy control, munikini, swimsuits for women. Again, the be too pretty women's one-piece, what is this, war and peace or bathing suit? Be too pretty women's one-piece swimwear, backless V-neck, bathing suit. Hold on, chapter two, this Dickensian novel of a bathing suit continues. Tummy control, monokini, swimsuits for women. So I said monokini because I thought it was from some island, but then I realized it was a monokini, which is the dumbest word I've ever heard. Obviously, they're trying to tell you that this is the swimsuit that can do everything for everyone. That is how many words they have describing the swimsuit. But a monokini? A mono meaning one. What is a bikini? Couple things. The bikini, it's just a coincidence that it starts with the prefix bi. A bikini is, or a bikini, is a two-piece suit named after the bombing of the bikini atoll. So it has nothing to do with bi. You can't take something whose entire reason for being is to define it as a two-piece and then make the one-piece version of that. It's like the flying penguin or the betestacled eunuch. This is your monokini. The uh, the color that's being offered, I guess this sucked a lot of people in to drive it up to 81, is army green, quite flattering. They also have uh, wine red. And then they have some some patterns that are flowery. And let me tell you how they describe what color they give for these patterns. Uh, This is like a a rose chrysanthemum pattern. That color is listed as 10. Then there's a daffodil blue and white. That color is listed as five. Do you want color? Do they really care about you? Do the be too pretty people care about you? If they're selling you, if they don't have the time to name their colors after delightful floral scenes, you can buy color 20, which looks like, I don't know, somewhere somewhere in the uh, Pacific Northwest. You can buy color 19. Seems to be a deciduous conifer going on there. Or you can buy what clearly is a navy tankini, monokini, with tons of fairly large white dots, what any normal person would call polka dot. They list the color as blipped, B-L-P-T, blipped. Also, I want to say that the fit is described as expected. of people said, as expected. But given how lowered our expectations are these days, is as expected really a good thing? I don't know. So I find no solace in the degrading the other number 81s. I don't know if I'm going to get the 80 books on top of mine down. All I could do is target a couple of them. And I'll leave you with this. Uh, Number 60 on the list of better selling books than mine is Goodnight Moon by Margaret Wise Brown. You want to buy Goodnight Moon, you want to read it to your kids so they go to sleep, I understand wanting kids to go to sleep, I'm going to do it for you. At the risk of angering the Margaret Wise Brown estate, what do you need to buy Goodnight Moon for? All it says is, great green room, telephone, red balloon, picture of cow jumping over the moon. Note, that's not her original idea or work, the cow jumping over the moon. Three little bears sitting in chairs. Does she have the rights to that? Two kittens, pair of mittens. rhyming mittens and kittens. It's lazy. Little toy house, young mouse, comb, brush, bowl full of mush, quiet old lady whispering hush. Not a lady. It's a rabbit confusing the children. Good night, moon. Good night, room. Good night, cow. Jump over the moon. Good night, light, red balloon, bears, chairs, kittens, mittens, clock, socks, house, mouse. Good night, comb. Good night, brush. Good night, nobody. Good night, mush. Good night to the old lady whispering hush. Good night, stairs. Good night, air. Good night, noises everywhere. You don't need to buy the book. I just did it for you. If you're lucky enough to be listening on three times speed, the kid will go to sleep that much faster.
So in closing, let me just say, good night me, good night you. Please order your copy of Upon Further Review. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who, in terms of seniority on the show, is number three. So your equivalent, if you were in the toys and games department, would be Untamed Raptor by Fingerling Stealth Green Interactive Collectible Dinosaur. Mary Wilson is the gist senior producer. She's really the number one person around here, which, to translate to the homes and kitchen section, makes her the Cascade Complete Action Pack dishwasher detergent fresh scent. And I mean that. 78 count. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He runs supreme over the Slate Podcasts. If he were in the camera and photo section, he'd, of course, be Fujifilm Instax mini installment film twin pack. The gist which when you search Amazon, you will find means Star Trek, the original series, episode 14, The Galileo 7, directed by Robert Gist, possibly guest. Oomperu, deperu, duperu. Thanks for listening.